Harper Academic Calling, Meg Mason. Meg Mason's novel, Sorrow and Bliss, begins at the end. At Martha Friel's 40th birthday party, we learn that her marriage to Patrick is about to dissolve. What follows leads us back to that moment in time, and also a little bit into their future. Martha is our protagonist, she is our unreliable narrator, and she is a person who struggles to see herself. Part of Martha's story is also the story of mental illness. Part of her story is also her incredible and incredibly dynamic family, and how this novel is also a love story about family and friends who become like family. Meg and I recorded this conversation over Zoom, and I appreciate Meg's patience with my cat, who popped up on more than one occasion. And while you don't get Tilly's visual, I have included a behind-the-scenes outro where you can hear her playing at the end of our conversation. If I were still teaching, I would use Sorrow and Bliss in courses designed around contemporary women writers, which is probably obvious, certainly also in courses thematically focused on family, relationships, or mental health. It may seem strange to hear Meg describe it as a coming-of-age novel when the main character has just turned 40, but I also think a lot of folks can relate to self-discovery happening after your 20s, and it's also a good way to remind 18 to 21-year-olds that they don't have to have everything figured out by the time they graduate. For creative writing faculty listening, I think you'll find loads to use in Sorrow and Bliss as a case study novel for your students, especially writing dark humor. Anyone who has used Alyssa Nutting's Made for Love, for example, will I think appreciate the work that Meg does with humor and wit and darkness in her novel. I love Sorrow and Bliss for many reasons, among them its use of the word epigee, uh, its use of a gif which is googleable, for its sharpness of wit and humor, and for the ways in which I laughed while knowing the piercing pain that was also being experienced by Martha or the incredible frustration that Ingrid, her sister, feels. I really hope you'll read it and like it too. If you are a faculty member subscribed to our literature and writing e-newsletter, I hope you'll take me up on an offer to read Meg's book for course adoption soon. Sorrow and Bliss is available now in hardcover ebook and audiobook from Harper Books, and we expect the paperback to be available in spring 2022. So joining us today on the podcast is Meg Mason, author of Sorrow and Bliss. Meg, thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank you. So if I had to give an elevator pitch of Sorrow and Bliss, I would describe it to someone as it's like the bell jar meets When Harry Met Sally, but British. How would you... How would you just sit with that for a minute? That's the best compliment <laughs> ever wished for. How Thank would you. you describe Sorrow and Bliss to someone who might want to pick it up? That's so interesting. And I've had to get better and better at that because when you're first told that you're going to need this elevator pitch by your publisher, you've just come out of producing these 90,000 words, which is how long it took you to tell the story. And then like, now could you tell it in 60 words? So it's quite difficult. But I, I think what I've settled on is that for me, it's a love story, first and foremost. It obviously pivots on mental health, but through the exploration of mental health, it almost becomes this coming of age where Martha gets to, you know, mature and become an adult at this very late point of sort of 40, 41. So I think that's how I see it. And I think as much as it has been described as a mental health book, I think that's important, but I don't think to me that's, it definitely wasn't my objective in writing it. So that's kind of come, I think, a little bit after the fact. 
So Martha is one of the main characters, or I guess is the main character in the book, um, and she has a constellation of characters that surround her. But one of Martha's biggest problems as a person is that she really can't see herself for who she is, in my opinion. She kind of wanders through a series of, I guess, pretty hard decisions about herself. And people are self-critical most of the time. I am super self-critical, so I totally get where she's coming from. But she kind of has this narrative, internal narrative thread of like wondering if she's a bad person or a person who is sick because she does talk us through um, a moment when she first felt that her her brain broke. Um, Or is she just, you know, generally an unpleasant person to be around? Can she be a good person? Or is she already a good person? These are just some of the things that are kind of pulling her and are preoccupying her. Um, So what did centering Martha's concerns on her identity and how how she is and who she is. What did that allow you to do in terms of creating her character and in telling her story? Yeah, I think I think because originally when I wrote this novel, I had a, a year-long false start that I then had to scrap and start all over again. And one of the problems with that first manuscript was I was writing in the third person, which I did for my previous novel. And so it's it kept turning out as repetitious, you know, of what I'd done before, but a much worse version. And so when I finally arrived at the idea of switching into the first person you just can't repeat yourself because that's such a different discipline so suddenly it was Martha telling her own story and I think what is important to me that I've only really come to realize afterwards is that she's an unreliable narrator but often when I think about a book like say Sense of an Ending which is a book I love by Julian Barnes he is also telling you a story about himself and what happened in his life, but it makes him look amazing. Like, and it's not till the reveal in the middle that you realize that he was as much, you know, the perpetrator of this crime that happened, whereas she is the opposite. And I think as far as people find her unlikable, which I didn't actually realize they would because I always found her likable, like difficult, but I always found her sort of charming. And um, I think that you can see as she goes along that she isn't telling you the truth about herself and that this is you know, this description that she's giving you of this 20-year accretion of shame about her decisions. So whenever she does something unpleasant, and obviously we meet her for the first time properly at her absolute lowest, and of course she's unpleasant, you know, when she's at that birthday party and she spends most of it in the toilets and she takes Patrick's palm cards off her, those are atrocious things to do. But I think that when you look at her, every time she relates one of these stories, it's always in a confessional capacity. She's never saying, I did this and it was fine. You know, she's always telling it through this lens of shame and regret and because she's trying to work out how this all happened. But I think insofar as it's about her identity, what has really shaped her, and I think my daughter who's doing her final year of school told me that you know when in her extension English class is allowed to use the word themes so I just about said themes and um fictional concerns is that she has had the absence of knowledge at the center of her life it's the absence of knowing that's shaped her informed all her decisions you know charted her career and you know was there at the beginning of her relationship with Patrick and brought about its end and so that's what this is this is her attempt um, to find out, you know, what that knowledge is and then what to do with it once she actually gets it because she's been living with this her entire life and now she has this piece of information and feels it's come too late, changes everything. But it also, she talks about after getting this diagnosis, she talks about the fact that she was right 
when she looks back over her whole life, it was never her. And that's what she was trying to explain. And she was acting out of this compulsion that she knew was being, you know, caused by something, but, but where was it? So I think that's how I sort of formed her. Yeah, and let's talk about her illness. And so one of the things that I think is pretty cleverly done in Sorrow and Bliss is the absence of knowing what her final diagnosis is. Um, I thought that was really clever because you, you represent it in, in the book when she sees Robert, um, the last psychotherapist that she sees. It's spoken in terms of novel writing time as just, yeah. as just a dash. There, yeah. there is no named illness. There is no named diagnosis. Yeah. I thought that was super cool because I, you know, I think one of your sort of natural impulses as a person when someone is given some sort of diagnosis is, you know, you're, you're Googling and, and yeah, you're going to, you're going to find out that that person is going to, you know, die of cancer three days later, no matter what yeah. the issue is. Yeah, right. Exactly. So was that sort of, it was obviously an intentional choice. So I'm not, I'm not going to ask that question, but was it, was it scary to make that choice of sort of taking out the named thing or was it, or was it freeing for you as a person, yeah. you know, sort of pulling the strings in the yeah. story, not have to worry about that and not have to then, you know, presumably not have to do necessarily so much research to get so many things right about what that thing actually yeah. is and kind yeah, of burden definitely. the story that way. Yeah, well, it was a huge relief, actually. And the day I settled on it, I was out walking my dog and I think I literally said out and had oh my goodness, like that's the solution to it. And what had happened was, so for the first, I think it took around nine months to write the first draft. And for those first four months of that time, it was never in my mind a novel. It was just something I was doing and it was never going to be seen by anyone. And back then I sort of began with a condition in mind, which underpins it. But as I, as I built to that midway point, which is when my publisher and I thought actually maybe this can be published, these concerns had been building up that that was a solution to all of them. And it was sort of across creative concerns and personal concerns. And so that that served all of them. So my first concern was that by then I had moved away from what this real condition was. And I had taken symptoms and I had bent them to fit the narrative. And I omitted some and I you know, added others and amalgamated all different conditions. And I could no longer say she has this thing and this is what it's like because it's not like that it doesn't exist and so i was really concerned that i would therefore be misrepresenting a real life condition that people who suffered from this condition would look at it and say it's not like that i would never do that you know i i and obviously martha had this is martha's story she's telling it she needs to use the language that she wants to use and she can't accept this condition she hasn't made peace with it by the end it's cost her everything so she needs to be able to say I have something wrong with me and we wouldn't we wouldn't talk in those terms but if she was using inclusive you know correct language that wouldn't be true no one speaks about themselves when they're at the rock bottom point that she is at so there was that concern for misrepresenting her there was also a concern that it would become and i guess this is semi a marketing concern but it's also where the text would go that if i made it schizophrenia or bipolar or narcissistic personality it's the schizophrenia book you know what I mean? That that would be in the first line of the blurb. Martha is a woman with schizophrenia. And she's that's not what I care about. And I think then finally when I realized it, and there have been people who are furious about that reduction and will tell you that it ruined the book for them and they'd put in all this effort to get to finding out. And 
but the thing is they also tend to be the people who find her the most unlikable and can't forgive her for her crimes so what i think that does is when they're like it's annoying i i you know worked so hard to get to here and i'm like so had she Remember, this is how she feels, except it took her 20 years. So maybe you can then feel this measure of empathy for her because she this was coming out of this condition and she didn't know what it was. And what does that feel like? It's infuriating and it makes you make certain choices and be unpleasant and throw books across the room. You, you know, so I think when all of those problems came together, um, I was like, this is a solution. I took it to my publisher thinking there's no way she's going to let me do this. And she, and she was like, absolutely, that's perfect. Let's do that. And so I was really surprised. And I was so grateful to her because by then I had got to the point where I was like, if I have to put a condition in there, I just won't publish it. It's, it's more important to me to keep it that way. And I think the benefit that's come out of it afterwards is people so kindly like you who do appreciate it being done that way is that it lets anyone project whatever they want to into that gap so they can put their own experience in there and I've had people come up to me at festivals and things saying is it this is it and I've had every I've had every condition has been suggested in there so I think I I feel that if someone wants it to be ADHD it is and if you know they so if they see that then that's true that's what it is so I think it leaves that that space to kind of operate within that. I the first time I read it I have to say I was not sure how I felt about her because at first I was like I don't I don't know if I like her and then I was like well that doesn't it doesn't matter if I like her or not really and then the second time I read it I was like I just my overall feeling the second time was that I just genuinely felt a lot of empathy for how much pain and how much struggle she had I can't really on some level I can't imagine that kind of internal struggle I guess um but other parts of it just really for her character other parts of it just really hit home for me I mean the fact that she was at her 40th birthday party I turned 40 in (laughs) August just you have one of those moments where you're just like you are approaching uh as as Martha is as I am in real time I guess you know you are approaching this age where you kind of I guess for lack of a better phrase, you know, you just kind of pick your head up and you look around and you're like, well, where, yeah. you know, where is, where I'm are my peers? Yeah, that where I was gonna get? Yeah, into. where yeah, are my, absolutely. where are my peers at, and where, where am I in relation to that? And how did, how did all of this happen? Really, you know, you exactly. get, you get to that exactly. moment where you're just like, what? Um, how did yeah. it happen this way? And so, yeah, I mean, I. I can see why people struggle with her as a character. There's a reading underneath it as well. So in terms of what we were talking about before, people tend to really love Ingrid. And she, if they love a character, it's that they love Ingrid. But what you're missing, I guess, if you read it on the surface and you just judge Martha for these awful things she does, is that Ingrid is her is her mirror image. They yeah. are, to a large extent, the same person, except Ingrid got what she wanted. And Ingrid has not had this experience. And yet... Martha must be as funny as Ingrid. She must be as charismatic as Ingrid because they are the same person, but their choices have borne out in a different way. And I think you're right. I was 40 when I started this book. I just had this massive professional failure. It's all I'd wanted to do was to be a full-time fiction writer. And that was suddenly over and I was 40. And you don't have the luxury anymore that you do it that you go, oh, there's heaps of time. I'll make a different choice and there's loads of time and I'll just redeem it in some way. 40, it's kind of all ossifying. You know, whatever these decisions are that you've made, 
you're living out, you know, they're bearing out and you can't reverse them as easily. And I think, you know, I remember describing myself to someone after that big collapse as post hope. And how do you get that hope back when all of these things that you wanted, they are not here. <laughs> they right. never came. Right. And it's interesting that you bring up Ingrid. I also like Ingrid. I, I see them um, and they are relationally in, in the structure of the book. They are sort of two peas in a pod. They are inseparable. They are utterly devoted to each other. They have very much the same kind of sense of humor. But as much as I love Ingrid, but this novel is also very much about their family. Mm -hmm. You have such a wonderful collection of supporting characters in in this book, from Patrick to Martha and Ingrid's parents, um, Celia and Fergus, uh, her aunt and uncle, Winsome and Roland. Like most novels set in... England, um, and in particularly in the parts of London that we're operating in in this book, there are also class undertones to these relationships. Of course, you kind yeah. of can't do it without without also yeah, talking no, about class. And I heard Margaret Drabble or someone along those lines saying every novel is a novel about class, mm. wherever it's it's set. There's always something underpinning that. And what is and I'll you haven't actually <laughs> just cut you off. No, no. The question you're about to ask, but what was interesting to me is because I've explored class in previous things that I've done but this was class inside a family which I was suddenly like oh that's interesting and I guess that Celia and Winsome in a way they mirror or you know they precede what Ingrid and Martha then go through but they didn't make it in the same way because they did cleave from each other and the, the obstacles including money they were just too great to get over and there's the resentment there that's built up but you do, there's usually the rich one and the poor one in a family. It's hard to find that middle ground in the same way that it's hard for Celia and, I mean, sorry, Ingrid and Martha, even though they are so close and they're in such sympathy with each other, to keep finding that place in the middle when Ingrid is suddenly overwhelmed with these children and that's her focus and she's moving to this, you know, very family-friendly village and all of these sorts of things. Um, I think class pushes them all in opposite directions and can they find that middle ground? Yeah, and then there's someone like Peregrine who is a fabulous, I just, he comes into my mind <laughs> as this sort of very fabulously decadent man with ascots. And like wallpaper. Yeah, yeah and sure. I, I, I don't know, I don't know if he, if he will have an ascot, but it, that's just how he will always oh, have he one. He has one. one. If okay. you saw one, he has one. He has, sure. he has one in my mind. But I mean, it's just such this delightful cast of people around her that I think really make this a very sort of fully fully formed and very well-rounded book that's yeah has a main character but also has all of these other delightful people to to look at and follow through did some come to you perhaps maybe a bit more fully formed than others because you you have a lot of people to work with and keep track There's of a lot of people yeah well I think strangely they did even though this novel was definitely not a redrafting of that failed novel I had thought about them all in that context and they had been named and so I was familiar with who they are and the setting in which I was going to place them so the cast had sort of already been built but they weren't developed in the same way and they were all quite different and there wasn't so much I guess love and joy and brokenness and all of those layers of things between them but I think what has happened and again this, none of it was really intentional so I feel you know that it's all a bonus if it's happened but I think by having such a circle of characters around her you get to see not just the impact of her suffering on her but on the family the ripple effect and I think that it does if you have someone like Martha at the center of your family or if it's you of course it, it 
you know, it, it ripples out through your family and it shapes your family. And, you know, when Martha doesn't have a diagnosis, a medical diagnosis, she very much has a moral diagnosis. And I think when people talk about the breaking down of stigmas and there's jokes about that in the book um, that Ingrid sort of and Martha make, maybe that's happened in society. Maybe you can talk openly about your anxiety or depression. Arguably, I think there are conditions further down the spectrum that are a little bit not quite so you know i would say they are more heavily stigmatized but they're also stigmatized within a family because you are the difficult one Mm -hmm. you know and you are the one who's going to ruin christmas day and you're the one who we can't take her anywhere and i think that martha very much takes that moral diagnosis onto herself but i think what's also been really interesting is that i read somewhere it may have been one of those terrible days when i strayed onto goodreads where someone who didn't enjoy the book and i respect that that's a reaction to it. That's fine. I'm still grateful they read it. Kind of hope they paid full price for it. But anyway, um, I, she said, oh, I, I'm sick of listening to white women complaining and, you know, they're privileged and I'm, I'm sick of hearing that. I don't want to hear about their misery. And I thought that was really interesting because of, that's, a, that's, some, that's a conversation for this moment and I think it's really important. But at the same time, she's acting out of a disease which doesn't discriminate between, and yes, she has money and she has, you know, she has access to medical treatment, but she's still ill. And I don't think that if she had cancer, you'd be like, oh, white woman and her cancer. Do you know what I mean? I think that is a leveler between class, but I thought it was really interesting. And it is there because it's, you know, it's front and center. But I thought, do we still have compassion for someone who can't? use money to solve this problem i mean she tries she goes to see every single doctor she can but it can't you can't just magic it away with money so i thought i thought there yeah it's interesting to me that that was one reaction she's very thoughtful as much as she is self-critical i I would also say that she is she's also thoughtful and she can see those moments in herself sometimes like the, the thing that comes to my mind and sticks out in my head is (laughs) <laughs> her glasses right she got <laughs> she got she got glasses because the optometrist fell off of the stool that he was on uh, and she felt bad because he was embarrassed um so she started purposely misreading the letters and she has these glasses that she doesn't actually need and she just keeps them in like her car or whatever so she has these moments where she can see herself and see the good things that she does and is capable of and and is but she's just so convinced um and rightly because she does have a diagnosable illness but she's she's just so convinced that she is less than i guess was was one of my big takeaways from her is that she just she just could not see herself clearly at all and then when she was then when she was given the tools to do so then there was, and I think if I, if I could put myself to the extent that I could put myself in her in her position, there was a lot of anger, and that was something else that really stood out to me about her character when she got that diagnosis was just the rage that she yeah. felt in yeah. kind of in every direction. Yeah, absolutely, and it's really interesting because when you're editing a book and say you need to cut ten thousand words, and you're sort of looking at this manuscript to think where can they come out, because those observations, like the optometrist that you mentioned, they're very discreet and contained, and they would easily lift out. You could take them all out, but if you took them all out, what you would miss is those are the times when Martha's revealing to you her compassion. Mm-hmm. So it's often an observation about Ingrid's children who are never named, but if you think of you know the idea that love is just attention Mm -hmm. then that is how she 
shows her love is that she thinks these tiny things that the children say are worthy of collecting and worthy of including in her story that she's telling. And so you couldn't lift those out without making her purely unlikable. So that's why they're there. And they're usually interposed with, I don't know if it was on purpose or not, but they're usually between her worst crimes. And then she'll tell you this little thing that she captured of what, you know, one of Ingrid's boys said. But I think the rage, yeah, because it comes, it's too late. She finds out this information too late and she has to then go back and revisit every point at which this determined where she went. And of course you're angry and then you're angry at everyone around you who bought into the idea that you sold them, that it was just you. You know, they had got to the point where they all just agreed with her. Yeah, you are pretty difficult, but we can sort of tolerate you. And she has acquired so much shame. And I... I wrote a story once for a magazine about shame and it's one of the only emotions that is a narrative emotion. So fear is very much a biological impulse. You know, it comes in that burst, it's the adrenaline, but shame is something that builds up and it's a story that you begin to tell about yourself and everything that you then do, you sort of stoke that idea that you need to be ashamed with this evidence. And that's what she's doing. She's saying, and then I did this and then I did this and look how ashamed I am. Um, and I think that's so binding. So when she realizes that it wasn't ever her fault, um, to, well, to an extent, that's how she feels. It was never me. She's furious. She's furious. And Patrick's a doctor. You know, that's where their relationship starts to come unhinged because he should have known and she should have known and all these doctors should have known. Um, and, of course, her mother, I don't know, are we, are we trafficking in spoilers at this point? I mean, that's, <laughs> that's up to you. That's up to you. Yeah. Anyone who doesn't want a spoiler, I guess, stop here and go and make a <laughs> cup of tea. But her mother did know, and yep. that was that was shocking to her. And, of course, she just didn't want it to be true, and that's where the conversation about labels, I guess, comes into it, that Martha, you know, Celia defends her decision not to tell her what was really wrong That as a condition she also shares, which she's, I guess, medicated with drinking. Mm-hmm. But she says, I didn't want you to go through life with this label attached to you, but Martha says labels are good. Labels, when they're correct... Labels are helpful because you don't then give yourself a moral label, which yeah. is what she's done. So that's why, um, yeah. So I guess it's weird that that sits alongside me not labeling it. Um, <laughs> I don't know if that works or not. No, um, I think it does because in some ways it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what that label is. It gives you a language to help you understand yourself. Um, and for for Martha, that's you know the biggest thing. She's. She is concerned about how other people see her and, and interact with her um, and love her or don't love her. Um, but she she really is looking to, I think anyway, she's looking to sort of figure out how can I explain myself to me? Especially yeah, since yeah. she's at sort of this, this pivotal moment of uh, turning 40 and thinking like, okay, well, what's, what's going on? This, yeah, no- exactly. Nothing has happened the way that I thought it would. Why is that? Yeah. Yeah. And I guess that's when it becomes, after that event and after the diagnosis, that's when it becomes about forgiveness and what you are capable of forgiving, what's forgivable, what's not forgivable. Patrick then describes something that he did as as unforgivable. And, you know, can she reconcile with her mother? Um, Can she reconcile with Ingrid? And, And can she reconcile with herself, I suppose, is the biggest thing, because she is guilty and she's trying to repent. And can she actually get there? Yeah. And which is where the baked Alaska metaphor. Which is where the baked comes Alaska in. comes in. Yes, if you are a fan of, if you are a fan yeah. of the Great British Bake Off, definitely read this book because 
Ian and Diana's baked Alaska moment is talked about uh, as a <laughs> as an important, I would say, cultural reference. Yeah, I had to I had to say to my publisher, I'm like, should we get that legal? Is that slanderous? <laughs> and is that in the it's in the public domain though, right? That was the argument that was made. That you know, that was the argument we were having. Was it intentional? Was it sabotage? Was it was it an accident? Purely an accident. So it I was a hashtag. That's where at they one had point, that little so. moment yeah. <laughs> at the end about what was intentional and what wasn't. So So in all of this which I think for, you know, kind of on on its on its surface, if you think about, there are several, I think, love, kinds of love story in this book. This is also, you know, a book where a character explores what is going on with their mental health. It seems like it's a lot of, of heaviness, but it's actually, I think, a, a joy to read. There is a lot of humor and there is a lot of, at times, uh, at times sharp, quite sharp wit. It's so good. It's, it's, it's a sharpness and and a humor and a wit that belies, I think, also incredible, incredible heartbreak. So for you, how did humor help these moments? Because there were sometimes, and and forgive me because I have forgotten which one I was going to reference, but there was there was at least one in particular. I will let you know what it is when I come up with it. But, yeah, it'll come to you. Um, but it was just so breathtakingly sharp, and then immediately just gut-punchingly sad that it just it honestly took my breath away so what was it like to balance those moments because you do set up for a gut punch very well with, with oh, wit with wit you. and humor so, so what, what was that like for you yeah well that's I'm so glad you found it funny because when I was writing it I found it funny which is really weird experience because usually by the time you've written something it's super dead to you mm -hmm. but but in this case I just continued to find those observations amusing but I think um I guess if there was a companion volume if I could choose a companion book to this it's um the brother brother of the more famous Jack by Barbara Trepido mm -hmm. and when I read that not long before I started I was, I was like here is the object lesson and how to mix humor and pathos this is a story you know, it's a, about a woman who who kind of joins a big bohemian family and she falls in love with one brother and then she falls in love with the other brother and then her baby dies in that book and you come out of it thinking that was a funny book and that baby dies in one sentence she just says it and then she moves straight on and I think that yeah that was breathtaking to me but I think where the, what you're talking about may be with the the gut punch or the reverse of that where she lightens a moment so when she's in that appointment with Robert and he's just revealed to her this this truth this is the thing this is the revelation that she's been seeking and he gives her this diagnosis and he says this is what I believe you have and she says oh well I hope it's just the 24 hour kind <laughs> mm -hmm. and I think you would make a joke in that context I think you would try and just it's too much for her to kind of absorb in that moment so she makes a little joke to kind of make it bearable you know it's that gallows humor and that's why we joke about death and we joke about all these things to act as though we're not afraid of them because now she's got to go home and work out what it means to be a person with this thing um, so I think that's why it does that. And I think then it just is, I guess it's just a nice contrast. Like even when Patrick proposes to her, the first thing she sort of says is, can I have a biscuit? Mm -hmm. And she doesn't cope with that intensity of emotion well. And it's probably because her own emotions are so intense that she, she almost panics about, can she handle 
this amount of attention. So I'm laughing because your cat is yep. being so loving she's, she, yes. <laughs> during. She's a participant. I wonder if she has a question. Should we throw the questions from your cat? To, she Very does. She does like to. She does like to sing. <laughs> she does like to sing. So oh, she... hopefully we'll get some of that. Oh, um, yeah. So I think I think that's why it's there, and I think I needed to. I mean, partly it's just the way I think personally and those are the terms that I frame life in, but I think I needed to give these poor readers something to get them through this heaviness to kind of lay this trail of, I promise there's a joke coming, you can do this, because it's pretty dark um, in places, but I definitely didn't realise how dark it was until people started to tell me that, because I guess I guess I'm a dark person who has a lot of dark friends and we're just like, well, of course, that's what happens. Um, but yeah, so I hope it, I hope it works, and I think that's what... I have taken out of the writing experience that if you are going to bring people to that point, you need to fill those heartbreaking scenes with jokes and you need to break their heart, you know, in those humorous, right at the end of those humorous moments. So, yeah. And I think I would say that, um, I don't, I, I, there is darkness in, in it, I would say, but I, I think, I think one of the things that I appreciated about the book and it's, it's balancing of those dark moments with humor is that it just made it very real to me. Everything and everyone in this book seemed like it's possible, even though this is a fictional world and these are fictional people, there is a realness to it. And, and I think consequently a believability to it, um, which to me is, is very appealing. And I think um, I won't ruin the ending for anyone, but I think how you ended the novel, because as you say, it is a love story first and foremost. This is the story of a relationship between Martha and Patrick primarily. There was not a neatness to the ending. It was not messy, but it was a real life situation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think I didn't, I obviously wasn't planning a novel, but I knew that that's the point to which I was working and that that was where I was going to stop and then some and to just leave them there because I guess echoes the idea of there is a beginning in the end and there's an end in the beginning so you sort of flip that because they are starting over I think if you if people are wondering what will happen to them I think the line about him calling that studio the Hotel Olympia tells you everything that you need to know um but yeah someone did ask me oh does she do this thing that she wanted to do and I'm like I don't know I never I had never considered it at that moment all I know is that they were together and and in a room not necessarily together in their relationship but there they were watching Bake Off which to me is incredibly romantic you know it's that tiny domestic intimacy which you have if you're lucky years of that and one moment of being up the Eiffel Tower you know what I mean those are the moments that are sort of precious and shared and that's your world together and Yes. So I think, I think that you, it would have made it all suddenly to the extent that I did make it feel real. It would have suddenly been like, it was a novel the whole time, you know, because it was always going to end this way. But I think one of the things that I, that I asked for um, in order to emphasize that realness was things like magazine titles or the names mm-hmm. of films are usually italicized, usually indent text messages or, you know, italicize those. And I was just like, nope, just please, can we just have totally flat, you know, if she really was writing this thing, she's not going to italicize, you know, and, and have it all perfectly typeset the way we would. So that also e- echoes that really prosaic economical tone that it has. Um, so I think that was important. But the other way that I did that and again it was slightly organic was to not follow the conventions of how dialogue is usually presented from a purely punctuation perspective Mm -hmm. so instead of you know 
hello in speech marks, Patrick said, how are you in speech marks? It's just Patrick said hello, mm-hmm. full stop, and then in speech marks, how are you? So there's, I think there's like actually six or seven styles of dialogue in there, which I had to create a guide to when the poor sub-editor was trying to be like, wait, what, what? is happening here? Is this wrong or is this right? But I think that's how you would, if you were speaking it, that's how you would speak it. It would sound like that. It wouldn't sound like Patrick said hopelessly or, you know, Patrick collapsed into the velvet sofa as rain pounded the window. He doesn't do any of that. If there's rain, you can figure that out, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I just have one more question for you. Uh, and it's a question that we ask all of our first-time guests on the podcast. Mm-hmm. Since we are primarily talking to an audience of teachers and their students, who was your favorite teacher? Oh, my goodness. Do you know, I actually said to someone yesterday, maybe I should email Mr. Barron. Maybe I should try and find him because he was a teacher who in ninth grade we had studied Hamlet in school. And I was a not, I was a bad student and I didn't read for pleasure until 12th grade when I couldn't get out of it any longer so but he we were going to act out these you know we'd get into groups and you practice the scene from Hamlet and then we were going to put them on for our parents and he said could you write some continuity that kind of ties these things together and you can make it more into a play so I went away and did that and I made it funny and obviously I gave myself the main role in that because that's what you're allowed to do and I remember it was the first time that I had made I'd written a joke and it was the first time I got to deliver that to an audience and they laughed. And I just remember this electricity going through my body. And I don't really remember the build up to the joke, but I still remember that the punchline was ultimately passive smoking will can like will claim many more lives because it came after this applause. And I was like, Oh my gosh, I will never need to take drugs. I can just do that. And it was, and I, I don't even think it was conscious of I'm going to be a writer, but that was my first taste of what that felt like. And obviously now as a writer, I don't get to hear if people laugh, but um, they tell me they do. So I just think he was the most significant to me because he gave me that that chance and went, you know, implied that I might be a writer. So wherever he is, I was also a bit in love with him. So <laughs> That's a wonderful, that's a wonderful answer. Sarah Collins, who who wrote Confessions of Franny Langton, she also began her story, um, her answer to that question um, with the story of a teacher that she wanted to track down. And I think she ended up finding her. I think she sent her a copy of her teacher, a copy of Okay, well, I might give it a whirl. Yeah, I might do that. It's but worth it. Yeah. It's important work that they do, isn't it? Because it's... you don't realize that you give this child this assignment and it could shape their entire course of life from that moment onwards. So... It's a big responsibility. Well, Meg, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, my goodness. It was the nicest way to spend a morning. I feel hugely honored. And if students come to study this book, I will never quite know how that happened. If they're struggling, just email me. I'll write you the essay myself. (laughs) And good luck with those paint colors. My vote is actually for the green one in the middle that doesn't have the border. As a, from a Zoom perspective, like that one there, like next to the one that you pointed to. This one. So that one. Okay. From a Zoom perspective, that's very strong. <laughs> if it's a Zoom background, that's There very we strong. go. We have it. All right, Meg, well, I'll let you know how this goes. Thank I'll send you, you the link uh, and we'll talk soon. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Meg. Bye. Bye.